today as we continue in our uh, Impact World series, we are in Acts chapter 17, and uh, it's, it's the time for you to open your Bibles, so if you have not already uh, found Acts chapter 17, I would encourage you to do that now. We're going to be looking at this text, so as we do it, before I read it, I'll give you a chance to catch up uh, while we just kind of look at where we've been. As uh, Paul and Silas uh, began what we generally call Paul's second missionary journey, it starts out not as a missionary journey, but as a, as a pastoral visit journey to go back to the churches that they had planted. Uh, he has separated from Barnabas, who then goes to Cyprus uh, with John Mark and visits the churches there. Uh, Paul takes the other group of churches, goes on the inland route, takes Silas, one of the experienced leaders from Jerusalem, and uh, on one of their very first visits, they pick up Timothy, uh, a young believer who is uh, from a mixed family. His mother is a, uh, is a believing Jew, and his father is a Greek, and so that creates some cultural issues that they address and deal with. And Paul um, goes out of his way to avoid unnecessary conflict, and Paul, as we see very regularly, is he's one who's willing to wade right into the center of conflict when it's necessary, but when it's unnecessary, wants to avoid it. Now, in chapter 17, um, Paul and Silas and the crew are, are heading. Luke has actually joined them now, the author of this book. In chapter 16, they pick him up along the way. So now Luke goes from talking about them and what they're doing to us and what we are doing as he becomes a part of this evangelistic team. Now in chapter 17, uh, we're going to see new journeys and new adventures. Let's begin with chapter 1. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis, <clears throat> excuse me, Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started to riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They're all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. Now when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. 
As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And He is not served by human hands as if He needed anything. Rather, He Himself gives life and breath and everything else. From one man He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And He marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own, po own po poets have said, we are His offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. For He has set a day when He will judge the world with justice by the man He has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising Him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we 
as we open your word today. I pray that you would speak to our hearts by your spirit. Father, there are so many things that we fill ourselves with during the week that keep us from being hungry. They can never satisfy the longing that you've put in us for yourself. And yet they so often become obstacles to our recognizing our hunger. It's easy for us to fill up on the junk food of life and not hunger for you, not not seek after you. Father, we repent of this. We confess to you that we have allowed other things to become priorities, other desires to, to get in the way, to keep us from seeking you first, from setting our hearts on you. So now in this moment, Father, enable us by your Spirit, by your grace, to choose to set our hearts on you. Father, it's you alone that we want. Not merely your blessings, not not just the things that you do for us. Father, remind us we can't come to you on our terms. We have to come on yours, on our knees, empty-handed and broken. Father, open our eyes to your word. Open our hearts that we might not only see and understand, but that we might choose and desire to pursue you ahead of everything else. Become, Lord, our single priority. We pray this in the name of Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, for your glory alone. Amen. Well, we have two dogs at home, and I love our dogs. Stella's the bigger one. She's a motley mutt. She's got a strange mix of German Shepherd and Husky and Dachshund and Beagle swirling around in her, in her body and in her soul. She has a strange psyche because of that. But Sadie is a little uh, Chihuahua mini pincher mix. And if I haven't already said this, I love these little knuckleheads. Every time I come home, or even walk in the room, they go nuts because they just, they just want our attention and our affection, especially Stella. Those of you who know Stella know that that's very true. She is somewhat obsessive about wanting to be loved. She just loves to be loved, and she wants to be loved by us. They will go crazy about it. Now, Stella, she'll just sit there and stare at me. Just until she gets my attention, she'll just stare. She's developed a habit of getting, wherever you're walking in the kitchen, our dogs tend to stay in the kitchen, and so when, whenever you're walking, trying to go to the fridge or whatever, she will lay down right in front of you. Because what she wants more than anything else is you. It doesn't matter if they're sleeping, if they're eating, no matter what it is, If we come around, if I walk in the room, their attention is on me. That's what they want. Stella will stare until she gets that attention, and then she immediately will flop over for her life-giving belly rub. And sometimes I think she might actually die without it. I know she thinks that, for sure. 
Sadie, on the other hand, she, she yaps and wags her tail. Well, she doesn't actually have a tail, so she just wiggles her little doggy derriere nonstop. They want our attention all the time. The cat, eh, that's another story. Now, I love our cat. Yes, I admitted it aloud. I do love our cat. But Tori's not like the dogs. Tori's different. See, the dog's deepest desire is for me. No agenda, no rivals. That's what they want all the time. More than their own food, more than their own comfort, they want me. Tori is a little different. That relationship to them is their highest and deepest desire no matter what, but Tori loves on her own terms. She's extremely affectionate. If you heard our podcast on Friday, then you know when she wants attention, she gets attention. When she wants to be affectionate, she is extremely affectionate. Sometimes when I come in, she's all over me. Other times I walk in and she scampers up the stairs and runs away. I don't know what she's doing, if she's napping or going to the food dish or whatever, but sometimes I'll reach out to pet her and she won't let me. She'll just take off. Most of the time, because she is a tortoise shell calico, and if you know them, they have a little bit of what we call tortitude. Most of the time, she just looks at me with that condescending cat stare. If you're a cat owner, you probably know what I'm talking about. Like, it's okay for you to live in my world, as long as you have my permission. You see, the difference here with them is not how much I love them or accessible to them the dogs and the cat all know me i love them all i'm accessible to them all but tori's devotion to me is often blocked by other desires in Acts 17 we see a, a similar distinction as paul preaches the gospel in three different places some folks receive it and are saved but some are unable to receive it because they're blocked by other desires Today we'll see this core reality. Receiving the gospel takes more than reason. It takes repentance. Receiving the gospel takes more than reason. It takes repentance. We need to recognize that the problem is not that faith is unreasonable, but that hearts are unrepentant. The gospel makes sense, and Paul presents it here in a reasonable way we see that phrase over and over again he reasoned with them in the synagogues when isaiah spoke to the people of israel on behalf of god the lord said through him in isaiah 118 this happens to be our memory verse for today come let's reason together the people of israel had reason to trust and follow god but reason wasn't enough they needed to repent. They needed to set aside their desires to recognize the reality of God. He is God, I am not. And everything else pales in comparison to Him. All of my desires should be for Him. But sin gets in the way. And we have hard hearts. Receiving the gospel takes more than reason. 
it takes repentance. Let's take a quick walkthrough of the text so we can look at it. I, I, I've used up a little extra time talking about my beloved pets, and so we'll have to go as quickly as we can here. But when we see Paul and his companions, they're, they're leaving uh, the, their pastoral section of their, of their thing. Paul has been imprisoned. Paul and Silas have been imprisoned. They've been turned out from the prison. They have uh, called upon their citizenship, their rights as citizens, just to make sure everybody knows. I think Luke includes that because it's going to come up again later as a huge part of the story for the rest of the book of Acts. But I think also because there's a, there's a need for us to see that Paul and Silas are not doormats. They submit to authority. They're not looking for conflict and their priorities are not stuck in this world, but they're also not averse to recognizing the realities of this world. And so as truly citizens of heaven, which is something that Paul hammers a lot, they're also citizens here in an earthly sense. And so they take advantage of that. Now they've moved on, they're, they're traveling, they get to the, to the town of Thessalonica. Unlike Philippi, when they first got into Macedonia, there is a synagogue here. Notice this pattern that Paul has. He continually, every time he goes to a new town, where does he go? He goes to the synagogue, the place where the Jews gather for worship, for fellowship. It's a thinking place. It's a place of Scripture. The pattern here is to read <clears throat> from what we know as the Old Testament, to read the Scriptures together, to read from the Law and the Prophets, and then to discuss it, to teach on it, much like we might see in a sermon, in a smaller setting, when possible, very often with interaction like we might have in a Sunday school class. So in this, this regular pattern of going to these new towns, he starts with the people of God, the Jews. He reasons with them from the Scriptures, and we see here, as in other places, some receive it, some do not. Now, here in Thessalonica, <clears throat> he's getting a, a pretty good response. But notice what happens here in, in verse 4. So after reasoning with them for three weeks, three Sabbaths, uh, from the Scriptures, from the Scriptures that they already accept as God's Word, explaining and proving through those very scriptures that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. He's proclaiming Christ, Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. In verse 4 we see that some, everybody say some, some of the Jews were persuaded, okay, and they joined them in their, in their campaign here, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. So some of the Jews and a large number of the Gentiles who had already received Yahweh as their God. And not a few prominent women. Luke goes out of his way in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts to, to give attention to those who were considered outsiders by society, particularly in Jewish society. The, the Gospel of Jesus Christ is the equalizer throughout history and culture. That's a discussion for another time. But as we see this here, you see some Jews, small number, big number of Gentiles, and not a small number of prominent women. 
Now, when he refers to prominent women, women of standing, women of means, often widows, often self-sustaining in industry, as we saw Lydia previously, who was a seller of purple, which was basically the, the royal fabrics. This is the important stuff, big dollars. And Lydia, as a self-sustaining woman, presumably the head of her household here, she has a house as a single woman big enough to house the church. So they meet there at her house. We see this happen in a number of spots. So when we see that term prominent women, that's the picture we should have. Some married, more likely not. But prominent in standing, in stature, and in means. Here he, he reasons with them, but some of the Jews believe and the rest of the Jews uh, they're not so happy. In fact, he uses the term that, that they're jealous. And they don't just say, Paul, we don't buy it, get out of here. They round up some bad characters, and then they start a riot. And then when they can't get to Paul and Silas, they drag out these innocent believers and blame them for the problem, Jason and, and those of his household, for allowing Paul and Silas to stay there. We're not told that they actually do but presumably they do stay there and they just don't happen to be there when the crowd comes perhaps they're hiding perhaps they're just not home maybe they went to burger king i don't know but what we do know is that they get there no paul and silas but the bloodlust continues perhaps bloodlust is an overstatement we don't see anything about uh, the the killing or stoning but they do drag them out to have them arrested without real charges. And this unjust treatment doesn't go as far as it did with Paul and Silas, but they do post their bond and their release. Then Paul and Silas move on. So while they don't, uh, they have kind of a mixed reaction there, they go on to the town of Berea. And we see specifically that the Bereans have a more noble character, as it's said here in verse 11. Why is it a more noble character? Well, first because they received the message with great eagerness, but don't miss out on how they received that message with great eagerness. Their eagerness was in searching the Scriptures. They weren't just blindly following, oh, hey, we got a new teacher, great, he's cool, he's you know, pretty dynamic, he's got a fancy hairdo, let's go follow him. That's not what happens diligently search the scriptures every day to see if what Paul is claiming and proclaiming is actually true. <clears throat> Excuse me. The, the Gentiles in the synagogue seem to respond in each of these cases. Here the Jews also respond. In Thessalonica, while the, uh, the Jews were already there, the Gentiles had left their own culture don't miss that. They left their own culture. They left their native gods, if you will, to pursue the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. They were already outside of their comfort zone in doing so, which may have led to them being more willing to follow the full logic of what they were already believing to its conclusion as Paul presented it. Here in Berea, because they're dedicated to the Scriptures more than they are dedicated to their own traditions, they are willing to follow the Scriptures 
to the logical conclusion. And therefore, there's a greater response. But those in Thessalonica, they're not digging that, so they go to shut it down, and they chase them out of there. This time, they're not messing around, so they get Paul out in a hurry, send him to the coast. Those who are escorting him take him not only to the coast, but farther down to the southern part of Greece, Athens. When they get to Athens, it's a different culture. Athens is what we might think of as a university town. It's a, it's a town of intellectuals. It's a town of philosophers and the educated. And we see mentioned here the Epicureans and the Stoics. Both philosophies started in Athens about 300 B.C. And so the Epicureans, just to kind of, we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but Epicureans are a little more... Um, Perhaps we might think of them as a bit more bohemian in lifestyle. Their primary good in the Epicurean beliefs, I don't want to caricaturize it, but I do want us to get an idea of it, is, is basically hedonistic. They believe that the highest good is pleasure. So the greatest pursuit is to gain pleasure and avoid pain. Everything in life was based on that. Both the Epicureans and Stoics were essentially materialists, but we might think of that a little differently today in our time. They weren't averse to metaphysics, but they saw the metaphysical through, uh, through materialistic eyes. And so uh, they already had a concept of science that, that is kind of mind-boggling uh, for how long ago it is, but they saw the universe is made up of atoms. They saw atoms differently than what we see. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't have the, the learning that we've gained over the years. But, but the Epicureans pursued pleasure and avoided pain. That was the highest good. The Stoics, on the other hand, still, they, they were both systems of ethics that led to what you might consider virtuous living, unlike our thought of hedonists and and bohemian lifestyle with uh, the epicureans they pursued virtue because they sought a long-term pleasure and a long-term avoidance of pain so their view of that is if i do what feels good now but it feels worse later that's bad i want to pursue the most pleasure and the least pain so what is good for others what is good for society provides that the stoics on the other hand they, they believed that the pleasure, the pain, the highest good was not in pleasure itself, not in my circumstances, but in transcending my circumstances and accepting, if you will, the will of the divine. Now, they didn't see that quite the same way, but, but the will of the divine nature. They considered uh, the God force to be throughout, uh, throughout the, the physical realm. So the Stoics were much more what you might think of perhaps like a Jedi. Not getting caught up in emotion, not getting caught up in how I feel, but accepting it. Saying this is how it is. Virtue itself is the only good. Therefore, doing good, living for others is its own reward that is the pleasure that is the point so they both arrive at a somewhat virtuous secularist type ethic that says we do good things but for vastly different reasons both of them however 
come together. I said this was going to be quick, and I utterly failed it quick. So as, as they come together here to address Paul, they're doing so here at the Areopagus, where folks would get together to discuss philosophies. Uh, for our own purposes, maybe think of it as your local coffee shop, where, where intellectuals sit around and discuss really important things whatever they decide is important that particular day so whatever the the newest trend on social media is we're going to sit around and talk about it paul becomes for them in this moment the trending hashtag so they're going to discuss with him what's going on he makes his case he presents a reasonable approach to the gospel based not on a jewish philosophy remember when he's in the synagogue he reasons from the scriptures here in athens he looks around at all the idols that they have. He understands where they're coming from, and he meets them where they live. Hey, I see you've got an idol over here to an unknown God. Let me tell you about this unknown God. That's the God that you really need to know, the creator of everything. He is the one who makes all this go. You might think of the logos, the word, as a God force. Let me tell you about the personal reality of God. And they're going along intrigued by his conversation until they get to the resurrection. And there's a sticking point. So a couple of things we need to notice as we, as we see this. That was supposed to be the shortest part of the sermon, so that's an epic fail. <clears throat> as we look at Paul, we see that Paul's evangelism and lifestyle are marked by some particular characteristics. First we see it's marked by purpose. Paul had a clear focus. He knew what he was about. He knew what he was there to do. He knew why he was on earth. In Acts chapter 9, he has the encounter with Christ that changes everything about how he sees reality, and he understands now that everything about me pales in comparison to Christ. We'll see in a couple more chapters, Paul lay out his purpose in Acts 20, 24. And in Colossians 1, 27 and 28, he says, my, our, my purpose, our purpose is to preach Christ. To present all of you, church folks who, has, who have received Christ, to present all of you mature to God. We want to bring others into the faith and we want to bring those who are in the faith into maturity. He's clearly focused on his purpose. We see also that his evangelism and his lifestyle are marked by passion. Marked by passion. He desired this purpose above everything else. Whatever else was important to Paul in his life faded to black compared to his purpose. This is why I'm here. He says to the Philippians, man, I don't know if you really grasp this, but for me, the entire point of living is Christ. And if I die, that's even better because I get to go be with Him. Everything hinges on this. This is my passion. He desired Christ and His kingdom agenda above everything else. Thirdly, we see that Paul's evangelism and lifestyle are marked by perspective. Marked by perspective. He saw all of life through this lens. 
Every part of it. Didn't matter what he was doing, what we were talking about, who he was talking to, whether he was riding high or whether he was locked up in prison, it did not matter. Beat me, stone me, praise me, all of that is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is Christ to spread the gospel, to bring believers into maturity so that the kingdom agenda of God is carried out. That's Paul's entire perspective. No matter what I'm doing in life, Paul was a bivocational minister. He was a tent maker. He worked for a living while doing these other things. Why did he do that? Not so he could make money, so that he could have a, a nicer house and a, you know, a Z20 donkey, as my old pastor used to say. He, he was raising money to fund his own ministry so that every breath that he took was breathing Christ. Everything he did was for that reason. We see that his evangelism and lifestyle are marked by purpose, passion, perspective. Fourth, we see that his evangelism and lifestyle are marked by perseverance. Perseverance. We just saw it in the previous chapter. We see it again in this chapter. He endured hardships willingly. We don't see Paul spending a lot of time in Scripture complaining about his lot. And he faces a lot of difficulty. In fact, at one point, he explains that. He lays out all these great difficulties that he's gone through, and he's like, look, I don't even care about this. But you need to know because you're stressing about life here. Let me give you a picture of what this looks like. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Yeah, I've been through all these things. I've been beaten. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. I've been, I've been left for dead. All of these things, I, even now as I, as I write these letters, I'm, I'm in prison for God doesn't matter because i'm going to leave this place and i'm not even going to remember this because the glory that is to come that is to be revealed in us man that's not even worth comparing i mean the, the life we have now isn't worth comparing because it's so great it's beyond our comprehension perseverance was a hallmark of his ministry paul's evangelism and lifestyle lastly are marked by persistence now, the perseverance is part of that. I want you to understand the difference here between it. He's willing to un endure suffering, endure hardship. But he's persistent in that he is not willing to give up. He is going to do whatever it takes to share the gospel. You run into some hardships, I can endure the hardships, but a lot of us can endure the hardships and quit. Or endure the hardships and, and say, well, I guess I'm, I'm going to go someplace else. They don't want to listen to me today, so... That's not Paul. He goes into Athens and he sees these idols. I'm in a secular town filled with all of these pagan gods and he gets fired up. But he doesn't get fired up, kick the stones and leave. He gets fired up and he says, all right, let's get to work. And he, get, he sets, sets to the work as he always does in the synagogue, goes to the Jews who are there in Athens because where you have a large city, you're going to have a large number of Jews in this particular time, and, and there's a synagogue there, and he goes and he, and he speaks to them, and he says, here's the scriptures, you got to know Jesus. And there's God-fearing Greeks there, he does the same reasoning with them. But he doesn't quit there, he goes out into the marketplace, not just where the people are gathered to hear about it, Peter might call that in season. So he, he goes out into the marketplace to whoever happens to show up. Let me tell you about Jesus. 
It's very interesting how these gospel conversations, we're not given details about it, but these gospel conversations that Paul has, as we can see from what happens in the Areopagus, are natural, thoughtful, sensitive, and purposeful. He's looking at where they are. How can I connect? How can I take what is meaningless and turn it into something meaningful? He does that. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, listen, I've become all things to all men so that by all means I can reach some. I got to do something. And if if you're Jewish, I'm going to talk to you in the language you understand. Let's talk about the scriptures. And if you're not, I'm going to talk to you in a language you understand. Let's talk philosophy. But one way or another, I want to take you from death to life. I want to show you the one who matters. I don't mean anything, but he means everything. Paul was excellent at sharing the gospel in a reasonable, winsome way. He does it everywhere he goes. Some receive it. Some places more than others. He's excellent at at connecting with people where they live, but even for Paul, the greatest evangelist outside of Jesus Christ himself, many still rejected. Why? Why? Because receiving the gospel takes more than reason, it takes repentance. It takes a change not only of my mind, not just a mental assent, but a change of my heart, my mind and my heart. The Bible never separates the reason from the faith. It never separates the rational, intellectual part of me from the affective, emotional part of me. And doesn't separate either of them from the will. There is a choice that must be made. I have to not only have a change of mind, but a change of heart. I have to recognize the reasonableness of the gospel, and I have to desire that truth, that reality, more than I desire my own agenda. My own flesh-controlled agenda works against God's agenda. You see that in Romans 8. Verses 5 and following. The mind that's controlled by the sinful nature, it doesn't, it's hostile to God. It doesn't submit to God. It can't submit to God. My own flesh-controlled agenda works against God's agenda, creating obstacles to repentance and faith. So let's talk about some of these obstacles that we see in the passage. Some common obstacles to faith that take place here. First is religious complacency. Religious complacency notice in the first few verses of the chapter here he goes into the synagogue and he reasons with them from the scriptures but just like today they're comfortable where they are this religious complacency happens a lot in churches in america in three oaks in 2020 I don't want to hear about that. We're good. Are you telling me that, that everything I've been learning in church isn't enough? Are you telling me that my mother and father, good Christian people that they were, missed it? Are you telling me that my pastor isn't telling me the truth? And Paul would say, 
I don't know, what does the Scripture say? Reasoning from the Scriptures that they already accepted, they still did not accept it. They were comfortable in their religion, in their traditions. Just don't mess with my life. You can talk, fine. But don't expect any change. Religious complacency keeps us from faith, keeps us from repentance. Secondly, we see a prideful jealousy. A prideful jealousy. Now some of the Jews believed there in Thessalonica. A good deal, a good number of of the believing Greeks who had already gone beyond what they were raised in to see the truth of God's Word in the Scriptures. So now they continue with that logic. They reason through the Scriptures. Wow, he's right. I get it. Jesus is what this has all been pointing to. I want to be born again. And as this happens, those who were religiously complacent, who were comfortable... We're good people. Don't tell us we're not. We're living right. Don't tell us we're not. They're ticked. There's a tribalism that tends to go on. Don't mess with my upbringing. Don't mess with my traditions. Don't mess with my family. And the jealousy comes in and they run them out of town. It gets worse. Notice also this third obstacle to our faith and to repentance, spiritual laziness. Spiritual laziness. In verse 11, Luke tells us that the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. Why? They were eager, they received the word of God eagerly, but not foolishly. They were eager because they were diligent students of God's Word. Don't miss out on the fact that they searched the Scriptures every day for themselves. They didn't sit in the synagogue and wait for the rabbi to tell them about the Scriptures. They did that. They participated. They learned. Why were they able to learn what they learned? Because the rest of the week, they're in God's Word. It wasn't an exception, an anomaly in their schedule. It was what they did. So when Paul comes and he says these things that make sense, they're reasonable according to the Scriptures, wow, I see this. But you know what? I'm going to check this. Because no preacher's going to come in here and tell me something that isn't true and lead me away from God. So they diligently search the Scriptures. They test everything everything the preacher says that's noble character why didn't the Thessalonians get it Thessalonians it's the name of the book I should get it right why isn't it Thessalonians shouldn't it be anyway what why didn't they get it they were lazy They were spiritually lazy. They were content to be consumers, to show up and have somebody else tell me. Hey, preacher, you did the study. You tell me. That's a great way to get led into a cult. 
That's a great way to get dragged down a primrose path to hell with false teaching that sounds good, that tickles my itching ears, but isn't true. Everything you ever hear from this pulpit or anywhere else, anything that you read in a book or hear from a counselor that wants to tell you this is reality, this is the way, check it against the Word of God. Don't take somebody else's word for it. Get your nose in the book. Get the ink on your fingers. Wear out the pages. Ask the hard questions. Hey, Zyger, uh, you said something on Sunday, and that doesn't make sense to me because I'm looking at this passage, and it seems to contradict. No pastor worth his salt will ever be anything but excited about that question. Because it's not about my opinion, it's about God's opinion. What does he say? Spiritual laziness is a common obstacle to faith and repentance. Fourth, we see personal animosity. Personal animosity. In verse 13, the Thessalonians, heretofore called the Thessalonians, but we're changing it to Thessalonians. The Thessalonians get word that Paul and Silas are in Berea and they say, oh, oh no, no, you, you messed with us. You came into my house and you started talking about this Jesus and we're not putting up with it. So they don't just stay home and shake their heads and tell their friends. They chase them down. They go to the next town and say, you will not be here. In fact, we're going to stir up the crowd against you. In fact, we're going to drag you out on the street. Can't get you, we're going to get your friends. There's a personal animosity. We live in a world right now where we are so busy with ad hominem attacks. I hate this person, therefore everything they say is wrong. They're not on my team, therefore everything they say is wrong that we can't even see what is right. We do that with the gospel. I, I'm so tied to a theological school that I probably don't even know anything about, but I was raised believing that Calvinism is bad or Arminianism is bad, that I can't search the scriptures for myself because I'm so angry about a label. A Baptist church. Are you kidding me? Those Lutherans? You can't follow them. Guys, follow the Word. Drop the personal animosity. It's not about the messenger. It's about the message. Now, the messenger needs to be changed by that message. But the fact of the matter is, all of the labels in the world don't change the truth. If Adolf Hitler shows affection to my dog, my dog still feels that affection. And in that moment, for that second, Adolf Hitler does a good thing. That does not mean Adolf Hitler is a good man, obviously. It doesn't undo the wretchedness of the rest. But it also doesn't mean that petting the dog is a bad idea. Let's stop hating others and seek truth. Personal animosity is an obstacle to our faith, an obstacle to our repentance. 
I know people who have dropped out of church because somebody from another political party said something to them that they disagreed with. I can't worship with them. Guys, I don't care if you're an elephant or a donkey. You have to trust Christ. Christ matters. Personal animosity keeps us from what God has for us. Lastly, we see that in Athens, they struggle with an intellectual bias. Intellectual bias. In verses 20 and 21, and, and then we see it clearly in 32 as it's, as it's brought about, um, they are wrestling with it. They, they think highly of their education. <clears throat> Excuse me. Verse 20, you're bringing some strange ideas to our ears. We'd like to know what they mean. Notice the character of these Athenians and those who, who stay in, in Athens. They spend their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. They fancy themselves smart people. And they, according to their education, according to what they have learned, according to their school of philosophy, they evaluate everything else. One of the things about the Areopagus is these are the folks who considered themselves the, the gateway, the arbiters of religion and philosophy in Athens, and particularly those bringing foreign gods. If you are not from here, and you're going to bring in your philosophy, your gods, then you've got to kind of come through the Areopagus. And we'll decide how good this is, because we're smart. These Athenians, and their education, and their intellect, and their wisdom, their approaches... Our truth is truth, and no other truth is truth. It's only our truth that's true. Even if we see something that is reasonable. They're good until they get to this resurrection. Now that's an interesting thing based on, on all the other things that they do believe and that they do accept. But that's a bridge too far. Not willing to go there. Some do. Some say, you know what? What you're saying here, actually, I need, to, I need to think that through a little more. Come talk to us again. But reason isn't enough because the gospel divides. It requires a heart that is broken and rejects my own biases to repent and choose Christ. Religious complacency, prideful jealousy, spiritual laziness, personal animosity, intellectual bias. What was true in these cities in the first century is still true of us today. Our issue is not that God has called us to something unreasonable. That's not the problem. He hasn't called us to something that doesn't make sense. Our issue is that our hard and sinful hearts, kind of like my cat, Wanted on our terms. Receiving the gospel takes more than reason. It takes repentance. Now whether you're hearing this today as someone who's encountering the good news of life in Jesus Christ for the first time or you're already a devoted follower of Christ, maybe have been for years, 
each one of us needs to examine ourselves for these obstacles to faith. Perhaps they're keeping you from, from Christ today, from receiving the gospel. You're so caught up in, in the religion you were brought up in or the things that you've believed and you're not willing to be wrong or you don't want to be challenged. You're afraid if you receive the gospel and you give your life to Christ, He's going to ask you to do something that you don't want to do. And you're passing on life because of it. Or perhaps you're in Christ and, and these obstacles are keeping you from living the victorious, passionate, purposeful life that is fitting for children of the living God. The gospel is reasonable. But that's not enough. You have to choose to let go of the things that you desire more than Him. More than receiving God's truth. The gospel is straightforward. God created us to be with Him. Our sin separates us from God. Sin can't be removed by doing good things, going to church, writing a check, or even saying a, a, a prayer of salvation or having four spiritual laws. You can't undo it by balancing the scales. The good news is that paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again so that anyone who trusts in Him alone has eternal life. A life in Christ that starts now and lasts forever. This is the gospel. Will you receive it? You've got to come on your knees. And if you're a Christ follower, you need to live in it. Just as Paul did, purposefully, passionately, with this being your governing perspective, viewing all of life through that lens, enduring hardship, never, ever giving up on the call. Today, as we go from this place, may God make you aware even painfully aware of the obstacles that you have allowed to keep you from repentance and faith. The Lord says, come now, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. But verse 19 says, this, this is the right thing to do. It's the logical thing to do. But if you don't, you will be devoured. God is calling. What will we do about it? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the good news that even though our sins are like scarlet, like crimson, Jesus came and died in our place to make us right with you so that you can make our sins white as snow, pure like wool. Lord, strip away any desire that we have that competes with you. Help us to set our hearts on you. Father, we want to know you. Convict us by your spirit to see that we can't do that halfway. Help us to be all in. Help me to worship you with all I am.
pray this in Christ's name. Amen.